There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you found this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Laura Cox Kaplan. Laura is the creator of She Said, She Said, a multimedia platform for women who strive to live their best lives with intention and who seek insight and inspiration through thoughtful conversation and content focused on women. Laura's 30-year career spans policy, communications, business, and media. She spent 10 years on the executive management team of global professional services firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, where she served for 12 years as principal in charge of government, regulatory affairs, and public policy, coordinating strategies across more than 150 countries. Before that, Laura held senior positions at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Department of the Treasury after getting her start as a press secretary in Capitol Hill. A common thread for Laura has been not only navigating constant change, but understanding and mastering the art of influence in government, business, communications, advocacy, and navigating family life. Laura Cox Kaplan, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. Really, no. really honored. We're thrilled to have you. And I think we have to extend the show given the, the intro I had to give for you there. I mean, that's just an unbelievable career, which, I mean, it's been an amazing career and continue, you continue to have an amazing career. Life started for you, though, in West Texas, in the town of Rising Star. Right. It's 1980 population of 1,204 <laughs> dropped to 859 in 1990. Your ancestors were some of Rising Star's earliest settlers. What was it like growing up there in West Texas and what were you passionate about? Yeah, well, it was an amazing place to grow up. It was a small town, a very tight-knit community. Uh, I was very blessed with a loving family and lots of close friends. And, you know, my um, both my sets of grandparents, I was lucky enough to grow up with for the most part. I mean, I lost a couple of them early on, but for the most part throughout my childhood, they were fixtures in my life. And so that large extended family was really amazing. But because it was a small town, in order for the school to offer all of the opportunities, or at least many of the opportunities that you might get in a larger place, you had to participate in everything. So it gave me an opportunity to really try things and to take risks and to be brave enough to do new things without you know, you you didn't worry so much. You, everybody had to participate. So even if you weren't particularly good at something, you could try it, right? Figure out that that maybe was not your calling, but maybe you did it anyway because it was part of supporting the team. So I loved performing. I grew up dancing and playing basketball and cheerleading and, you know, all those things that you do in small town Texas. Friday night football was you know, a religious experience of sorts. <laughs> so I was very involved in all those sorts of things. Uh, but it was a great place to grow up. You talked about Friday Night Lights. One thing we didn't talk about previously is football in general. Yeah. You know, my fans know I'm an avid Cowboys fan. You're from Texas. <laughs> I hope you're a Cowboys fan. <laughs> if not, we'll just move on. <laughs> I, I guess we'll move well, on. Well, <laughs> I used to be. <laughs> I've been gone a long time. <laughs> uh, you're still a nice person. That's okay. No, I'm kidding. So 
Laura, your career in government, politics, and public policy started in the office of the congressman who represented your own district. Right. How'd you get your foot in the door there? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So I was in college at the University of Texas, and my grandmother, Lottie Mae Roach, met our local congressman, who was a guy named Charlie Stenholm. He was a conservative Democrat. She met him because she was the grand marshal of the 4th of July parade, and she just thought he was the nicest man. And there was an ad in the newspaper for college interns who were either students in the congressional district or students from the district who were going to college somewhere else. And she called me up and said, you need to send them your resume. This would be a great opportunity for you if you're lucky enough to be selected. So um, they called me for an interview. Uh, I was selected. I went to Washington. It literally changed the trajectory of my life. Um, it was an amazing experience. I had been studying government and public policy, but I thought I would probably pursue um, a law degree ultimately, and that that would be my sort of my uh, career um, journey. And things changed when I got here, and it was such an amazing place to really learn from so many leaders to have an opportunity to participate in the policymaking process, to understand so many of these elements that have become so important to me in my career. Um, it was, it truly was amazing. So I, when I went back to college, I knew that Washington was where I wanted to be. So I, you know, called the congressman's office about six months before I was scheduled to graduate and said, you know, I'll do anything. Literally, I'll sweep the floor. And uh, they said, okay, we'll take you up on that. And they held a job for me. And I started out as a, you know, as a staff assistant, answering the phones, opening the mail, making the coffee. You know, this was a district that represents 28,000 square miles in West Texas. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of farmers in those areas. So they wanted to have someone on the other end of the phone to listen when they had a problem or just something that they wanted to talk about. And I ended up being that person oftentimes at 7 or 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> Politics was much more collegial back then than it is today, but it was still a tough business. You started working for a Democrat, then worked for a Democrat who became a Republican. Then you were part of George W. Bush's administration. What were those transitions like and what sort of resilience did it require? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. And I, when I, um, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I had never really thought about it from a resilient standpoint. It was more, you know, jobs, especially in politics or on Capitol Hill, there is a, there's a time limit, either one that you know about or there's always the threat of a time limit or term limit. If you're working for someone else, they could be voted out of office. They, you know, might not be reelected. They, you know, any anything can happen, right? So if you're hooking your horse to a, to the wagon of somebody else who's the representative, there's always the chance that you won't have a job in two years' time. And so I think that particular sort of notion of knowing that there were going to be set endpoints whether it was in the jobs that I held on Capitol Hill or whether it was when I went into a presidential administration, you knew that, you know, at least in a two-year term or four-year term or six-year term, it was, if it was the Senate, that ultimately there was going to be a transition. So I didn't really think about it so much as resilience as in always thinking about um, how to continue to build skills and how to think about what might, be, what might ultimately be next. 
you went from communications director to the policy side. Was there something missing for you in communications or do you see it as more of an opportunity to grow professionally? Yeah, it's a really great question. It was more the opportunity to grow professionally. And, you know, when I was growing up, my parents, my mother in particular, was very focused on my understanding that I needed to be able to take care of myself. I needed to be financially self-sufficient. I, you know, she, she would literally drill into me the importance of not relying on anyone else to take care of you, not, not, notwithstanding my parents, but anybody. <laughs> and so it was something that was so drilled into my head. And so from a financial standpoint, I saw more opportunities by continuing to expand my skill sets. I was really lucky that most of my longest stints on Capitol Hill, I worked for uh, US Senator Richard Shelby from Alabama, who's about to retire, uh, was my, my longest stint on Capitol Hill. And he was very focused on making sure that everyone on his team, including the press secretary, me, understood the policies that we were uh, advocating uh, on behalf of the things that we were trying to get done. And so I was really fortunate that I was at the table and had the opportunity to really learn and understand that I wasn't just given talking points. I actually was there as people were making the decisions about, okay, why this and not that, why this and not that. And so I I understood that and had that 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 basic background, which I think was helpful. What I didn't necessarily realize at the time that ha- that really was quite valuable to me was the opportunity to marry those two skill sets together, which I ultimately had a chance to do. And having the communications background, learning to tell a story, to take really complex subject matter, and think about how how can we make sure that this appeals to our audience, to the voter, to the constituency, and marry that up with the with the policy. Uh, components that you're ultimately tr- advocating on behalf of, those were really important skill sets to learn how to marry those together. And I found personally tremendous value in using those transferable skills, even though I wasn't calling it that at the time. Now on my podcast, we talk about this all the time, but back then I didn't really, I didn't really recognize it for what I knew what it was, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily know to call it that. So you mentioned working for a senator, you worked for a congressman, Worked for Undersecretary of the Treasury and the Chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. All heavy hitters. (laughs) What did you learn about leadership and personal empowerment and influence from each of those folks that you carry with you today? Yeah, well, there were so many of them, right? I held all of these jobs, which was so amazing. And I got to... To, to, to learn from so many different people who had such different backgrounds and had had different experiences themselves. And I was thinking about, um, you know, some of the things that I learned, just a couple of things in particular. Um, with Bill Donaldson, who was the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, he had been... Um, one of the founding partners of Donaldson Lufkin Genret, which was one of the first really independent financial analyst firms on Wall Street back in 1959. And so he had a very sort of clear point of view about the importance of transparency, about corporate governance, about sort of a different approach to management and leadership. And he brought a lot of that skill set to the SEC. He also, by the way, had started or helped to start the Yale School of Management. Um, and he had gone on to to political jobs and a number of corporate jobs. But I learned a lot from Bill in terms of, you know, we were facing some 
particularly big challenges. This was in the wake of corporate governance failures, Enron, WorldCom, Arthur Anderson, all that good stuff in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I was part of Bill's team that had come in to ultimately make sense of legislation the Sarbanes-Oxley Act for, to, to, bore, to bore people completely to tears here. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I won't digress <laughs> too, too much. But anyway, just to set the, set the context, that's what we were doing. We were ultimately help writing the rules and creating a regulatory entity to regulate public company auditing for the first time. And so I learned a lot from Bill in terms of, you know, the SEC at the time had a lot of enemies. Uh, you know, investors felt betrayed, felt like the, the commission did not have their back. Um, you know, confidence in audited financial statements was at an all-time low. There were all sorts of things. And Bill would, as a matter of practice, before we did anything, would bring in all different sorts of people, including those that really were not aligned politically or otherwise, and would bring everybody together to have these conversations and really showed people what that looks like. It wasn't just a matter of get, having a broad, diverse team, which he did, but it was also a matter of getting broad and diverse input from a lot of different stakeholders. And while you certainly would not agree 100% of the time, what you would find is that you would find agreement on more areas than you would if you hadn't at least attempted to sit down with those folks. And so I saw that lesson play out. I saw this many times on Capitol Hill as well, uh, but you know, this was sort of a, 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 you know, a different circumstance, if you will. And, um, and I learned a lot about that. He also was one who, no matter how crazy and chaotic the day was, and they were almost always pretty crazy and chaotic, especially during that, that period of time, would close his door for 30, 45 minutes every single day and take notes on a legal pad and just reflect on what we were doing and why it mattered, what difference it was making, just to... to to make sure that he stayed centered as a person. And making that space to do that, especially when things are especially uh, chaotic and crazy, is one of the hardest things to do because you're drinking from a fire hose. It's chaos. Like, how can I possibly, you know, take a step back and spend the time to do that? And yet, it's so incredibly important for clear decision making. And so, you know, those were a couple of the lessons that when you asked me the question that immediately popped in my head. Um, I also, you know, I feel very blessed to have worked for such great leaders, Richard Shelby among them. He was someone who he always had your back. I was really young when I when he hired me as his press secretary, I was 24 which was very young to be a Senate press secretary. But, and I made lots and lots and lots of mistakes. But he always supported me in helping me fix them. And he would say, yes, you made a huge mess of this situation, but I'm not going to fire you. I'm gonna you're going to fix it yourself, but I'm going to support you in doing that. And he would send that message. It wasn't just me. He would send that message across the board to you know, other staff members, you know, we were we were young and we were often bold. We all sometimes we didn't listen as well as we should have, right? We were learning on the job, and yet you had a boss that was really supportive, and I think that was you know indicative of his style of leadership. You met your husband at the Bush White House, where he was the deputy OMB director and then deputy chief of staff of the White House. Right. How did it all happen? <laughs> was it was it love at first sight? 
Well, that's a great question. I, we, we should have him here to answer this as well, I guess. <laughs> he may not want to hear your answer. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, we were, I, I could give you the polite answer and say we were introduced by mutual friends. But in reality, a very close friend of mine who I had started out with on Capitol Hill, her name is Dina Powell McCormick. She is now uh, the head of global sustainability at Goldman Sachs. She's a dear friend and an amazing person. She um, and I were having dinner one night and she said, you know, who are you dating? You know, la 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 and said, what about this nice Joel Kaplan? Would you ever go out with him? And I said, you know, he's cute. <laughs> and she said, well, hmm. <laughs> and so the next thing I know, Joel, Joel calls me up and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, but we did, we connected right away. Uh, Joel and I have a really strong set of shared values. Um, it's interesting because we grew up so differently. Joel um, grew up, Joel is Jewish. Uh, he grew up uh, in the suburbs of outside of Boston. Um, I grew up in Texas, as we've already talked about, uh, you know, fairly conservative family, his family a lot less so. <laughs> um, and, and yet we had such a commonality in terms of our, of our values. Joel uh, served in the Marine Corps between college and law school. I'm the child of a, of a veteran of the Vietnam War. My father was in the first year cavalry division of the U.S. Army. Um, so we connected on so many different levels, our love of public service and our view of how important that that was, our love of family and our friends and, you know, all sorts of things, in addition to the fact that I think he's super cute and he's a really nice guy and he's hilarious. He has the most wonderful sense of humor. So. So if he's from Boston, I can't ask if he's a Red Sox fan. I'm, I'm assuming that's the case. And <laughs> well, you know what he used to be, but he's you know he's a big fan of the Nats. We now have a a great baseball team here. That's you know a uh, you know a newer development, if you will. But he certainly grew up a Red Sox fan. Now I think he's a a, a maybe a disappointed Nats fan at the moment. <laughs> but hopefully they'll they'll get back there. <laughs> a recovering Nats fan. A recovering Nats fan, exactly. So how difficult was the move from the public sector to the private sector for you? Yeah, you know, it was, as we talked about before, kind of inevitable from my standpoint, because all of the, you know, government jobs that I had had, had some sunset to them. And while I did, I left uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, so the Bush administration, basically, even though it was an independent agency, I was a political appointee on Bill Donaldson's staff. Um, I left at the end of 2004, um, and I went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, who had hired me as a direct admit partner uh, in order to make sense of becoming a regula regulated entity for the first time. And so that was my, you know, that was my task and assignment was to help the firm figure out sort of what that strategy looked like. Um, and that's that's what I ultimately went in to do. It was a great opportunity, a huge challenge. Uh, partners in the firm, uh, you know, for, for um, obvious reasons, felt like they were painted with the same broad brush as firms that had, you know, really done bad things, if you will. Um, and so it was winning over hearts and minds, both internally and also illustrating to our external stakeholders, both clients and the investing public, that we got it as an organization. And so there was a lot of uh, internal communications as well as external communications. It gave me a chance to really use those skills that I had fine-tuned on Capitol Hill uh, and combining those with that policy experience and then really understanding the 
you know, the regulatory piece of the puzzle as well. Um, and so I felt like sort of all those pieces came together for me from from a you know a uh, you know a job and career standpoint. Um, so it was really it was an incredible experience, and I had the opportunity to learn from some some amazing leaders and mentors. Many of them men, if not most of them, the vast majority of of people that I had worked for over the course of my career were men, um, and I, I found that was interesting. And it's especially interesting, I think, now given what I do, and it's precisely why I do what I do uh, for that reason, because I saw with my female colleagues, I saw how sometimes we would respond maybe differently to external events that were happening around us and how we would react to those. Um, and, and a lot of the sort of, you know, career choices that we were, we were uh, making and the, sort of the way we thought about those was oftentimes very different than I saw my male counterparts sort of contemplating those career moves. So... Many of our audience members have never known life without social media, which is just mind-boggling to me. And of course, blogs, and most importantly, great podcasts like She Said, She Said, and Next Steps Forward. But you had to make that transition as a professional communicator. A lot of people in the communications industry back then resisted those things as fads that wouldn't last, or certainly wouldn't have the value they do today. How and when did you recognize the value of social media, embrace it, and adjust your career to it? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's precisely because I grew up as a, as a you know communications expert, um, and you know, remember, I'm old enough, and you're probably not quite this old, but you might be close to my age. Um, you know, I was standing at a fax machine faxing out individual press releases back in the day. You know, so the idea that you have these tools today where you can get out a message. Instantly, you can you can build a community. You can build this concept with something that you literally have in your pocket is just extraordinary to me. And while you know there are a lot of people who poo poo and you know look at all the downsides to social media, and you know nothing is perfect, right? That might be a dramatic understatement for a lot of people listening. But at the same time, um, I think it, there are so many ways to use it, and I, I tend to look at. Um, these tools from the standpoint of how we can add value to our lives and to other people's lives. How can we, how can we deliver a service or help people solve a problem or, you know, create hope and opportunity and, and spread, you know, joy to be, you know, a little bit cliche about it. But I, I do feel really strongly about it. And I think if any of your listeners follow me on social media, I am if if nothing else, I am consistently positive that my podcast is positive, even when we're talking about hard topics. My social media is really positive. I'm constantly echoing and showcasing other women and other people who I think are doing amazing things and trying to make the world a better place and trying to help other people. I think when we use social media for those purposes, that's where the value can really come. Yes, there are downsides. I'm not an idiot, right? But it, it, is, it is something that we have some control over what we see. And I think when we curate our social media along those lines and we seek those resources that are positive, that maybe challenge us to think in a different way, um, that help us connect with neighbors that maybe do have a different point of view. I think there's great value in that. And so I'm a big, I'm a big fan. Perfect segue. I'm really impressed with your podcast. Thanks. 
She Said, She Said, as I mentioned before, is a multimedia platform curated and created specifically for women. Your mission is to provide insights and inspiration to help women strive to live their best lives with intention. Where that spark of inspiration come from to create the platform? Thank you so much for asking about it. It is, it really is a love and such a joy and something that I would never have, have envisioned necessarily. So when I, uh, when I, I spent 12 years at PricewaterhouseCoopers and including 10 on the U.S. management team. And I stayed well past the point in which we had essentially solved the problem that I was hired to, to solve. And I found myself kind of searching for, a new challenge or a new project or a new way of having impact. And I felt like I was not challenging myself as much as I needed to inside the firm. And it meant that I ultimately had to leave and try something else. So I uh, I created a, a course curriculum and started teaching at American University. I teach a women's leadership course. And I had prior to that point become very involved in a lot of women's leadership uh, efforts while at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And as part of that, um, I met this amazing woman, Sylvie Legere, who you know, Chris, um, who's become a dear, dear friend. And I spoke at a summit. Sylvie is a, is a co-founder of a group called the Policy Circle, and I now serve on the board of the Policy Circle. But back then, it was just launching, and Sylvie had me come and speak. I actually moderated a panel uh, with about eight women using your unique voices, how to do that and what that looks like. And Sylvie called me about four or five days later after the summit and said, you know, you should take this content and turn it into a podcast. This was five years ago yesterday, in fact. Um, and I, because I marked the date on my calendar, it was a really, it was a really special moment and I don't ever want to forget it. And I spent a little time thinking about it. And I said, you know what? You're exactly right. Even though, <laughs> admittedly, I never listened to a podcast. <laughs> I had some concept of podcasts, but it was really just getting started and still, you know, fairly new for an awful lot of people. And so she connected me with a couple people. We built something. I can't say that I spent a lot of time developing a strong business plan or all the things that I would advise other people to do if you're going to go down this road. It's, it's time well spent if you spend a little more time on the upfront. Anyway, so we have, we've fine-tuned and we've tweaked as we've gone along and I think really crystallized and niched down the content in a way that I think hopefully is crowdsourcing a tremendous amount of value for my audience. And it's allowing us to showcase some amazing women who are leading across all, all sectors that you can think of from entrepreneurs to public service to nonprofits to artists and creative types. I mean, it's literally across the board. But I like to think of it as crowdsourced content because I am pulling amazing lessons and perspectives and tying them or sort of looking at them through this lens of influence. That's a real theme that runs through the podcast. So we're looking at what makes these women influential. And when I say influence, I really mean what makes them the kind of people that other people want to work with? How do they build an audience or a customer base for whatever it is that they're trying to sell or for their, their message or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing? And they're, they're, they are so diverse. But we're learning from every story. And 
we're learning from our audience. I'm getting feedback on these episodes and I'm hearing about problems and challenges and things that we should talk about as part of that. So I really view myself as a, I play the role of Sherpa, right? I'm really leading this conversation, but I'm learning at the same time along with my audience. And it's just been the most amazing journey. I've had the best time. It's hard, really hard work, as you know, with a podcast to produce content every single week, but it's such a joy and I I truly love it. We've been talking to Laura Cox Kaplan and we'll be right back after a short break. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, a.k.a. Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, a.k.a. Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives. Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Laura Cox Kaplan. Laura has three decades of executive level experience in public policy, communications, corporate governance, and stakeholder engagement in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, and most importantly, is the host of the She Said, She Said podcast. We're talking about inspiration, influence, and living lives of intention. Laura, who are the role models, women and men, that you draw inspiration from and why? 
Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I have to say, I draw from the amazing women, both that join me on the podcast as guests, but also the amazing women who um, who are part of our audience, who weigh in with their perspective and their thoughts, either a reaction to something that we're talking about or a particular challenge or something that spoke to them or maybe struck them a little differently than I had ultimately, you know, characterized it or captured it. And so I get a tremendous amount of inspiration that enables me to produce this content for them. Um, but they really are my role models. I'm learning so much from all of these women. Um, I've had a, I've been very blessed with a lot of role models. I have a very you know strong, tight knit family. I have an amazing mom and dad. You know, I have grandparents that were part of my my life. An amazing husband. I mean, there are a lot of people. I am one of those people who is constantly looking for inspiration. You know, I I like to think of inspiration as something that you don't just sort of sit back and wait for it to happen, but you're actually seeking it. And I think about that as it relates to people. And I'm always looking for little elements or little nuggets or things that will strike me in a way that I'm like, oh, wow, that's it. That's the spark. Um, And so I don't really put people up on pedestals as much. I think that can be sort of dangerous because we as humans, no matter who we are, are um, are not perfect and we shouldn't be, right? And I think sometimes when we say role models, it can sort of feel like you're holding somebody up on a pedestal. Instead, I like to look for, you know, these different elements of our stories that really are kind of magical and ways that someone's made a decision or a pivot um, in, in a way that just inspires me. And I, and I think, okay, I know that took real bravery because that was really hard. And before I forget, where can our listeners find She Said, She Said and you on social media? Thank you, Chris. Um, she Said, She Said podcast.com is our website. On social media, I spend most of my time on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. You'll find me at Laura Cox Kaplan with a K. Um, on all of those platforms. I don't spend as much time on Twitter. I don't find it quite as healthy. (laughs) Have a harder time sort of curating that positive message that I can on the other platforms. Um, But Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook are my my three favorites. Um, And again, the website, she said, she said, podcast.com. And I highly recommend people to check out your website. I shared with you. It's very impressive. Um, A lot of content there. Uh, very easy to navigate. And so again, she said, she said, podcast.com. Hope you all go check it out. Thank you. I, I would also say too, you know, it is, it is content that is geared toward women. Women are my primary audience, but I would say I also have male listeners as well. And I think it's a really healthy thing, even though uh, women are my my primary audience. I think we can learn a lot from conversations that really are geared differently. And I'm trying to have conversations that I think really bring that female perspective in a way that sometimes that's not present. I have a lot of male listeners who have daughters or who want to understand the perspective, the female perspective, because you know, they have a wife or their female colleagues or they work for, you know, somebody who's a woman and they want to understand that perspective a little bit differently. Again, it's not that we're so, so different, but oftentimes we do view the world and circumstances or situations in a very different way or we might react differently. 
It took me 20 years of marriage to figure out happy wife, happy life. So I wish you had the content 20 years ago, but we're, we're getting there. We're learning. Well, Chris, you come listen anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so sticking with your podcast, a major theme that runs through She Said, She Said is the idea of building and sustaining influence. These days, often when we think of influence, we think of influence on, influence on social media platforms or influence as Wall Street or tech billionaires. But obviously, influence extends far past what we see in those arenas. We've spoken about the idea of influence as micro habits that we develop. Right. And you've used micro habits at every big step in your career. Give us some examples. What exactly are micro habits? Yeah. When I think about this concept of influence, it really does seem like this big topic. But as I have looked back over now, you know, some 200 plus hours of content and as many or more guests, I have found that there's really, I think, three primary buckets. There's a lot of ways to build and sustain influence. But as I'm thinking about influence, I'm thinking about it from the standpoint of becoming the person that you that uh, that other people want to work with the kind of person that other people gravitate toward um who you know differentiates herself as it relates to jobs and opportunities um potentially who who really is able to get her point of view across because she has that level of influence and i think of it i really kind of have found this sort of three part methodology if you will of breaking down influence in three areas the first is the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we craft about our experiences, the messages that we're telling ourselves about what we've done and what we've experienced. There's this notion of mindset that comes into play as it relates to that. And this is especially true as it relates to failure and resilience, which I know is a big theme for you on this podcast. But when we tell ourselves the story that what has happened to us in the past has been a failure, if we don't find some way of pulling value from those experiences and maybe recrafting it or reframing that story in a way to say, yeah, that was really an awful time, but here's what I learned from it and here's how I'm going to apply that, apply that going forward. And so this first bucket is really all about stories. It's the stories we tell ourselves and then the stories that we share with the external world about sort of who we are and the value that we bring to opportunities. The second bucket, bucket is really about investment and investing in ourselves. And that can sound like a selfish thing, but the reality is we are much better at investing in others when we first focus on investing in ourselves and really allowing the space and perspective and time to be able to learn, you know, to be able to really listen, to reach out to people. Part of that notion of investing is also about investing in relationships investing in our networks, investing in people that have a different point of view. It's all about that idea of lifelong learning. And I think it starts with investment. And then the third bucket is about engaging with intentional persistence. In those times where maybe you take a risk and you're going with your gut, you're not exactly sure of what the outcome is likely to be, when you stay the course and you trust the process, even if it's messy, even if you're falling down as you're going, but really engage with that persistence, it will pay off in the end. And so remembering that, and as you can tell, each of these three buckets really overlap and intersect, 
But I sort of think of them that way. And that's oftentimes the way that they play out in these conversations with my guests. Inevitably, I will hear elements of each of these three buckets with with some consistency. And I've found that to be true in my own life. When I live by these elements, and there's a lot of different sub buckets to, to these sort of big, big three pieces, if you will. Um, when I live by those, I'm happier and I tend to thrive more. When I'm not engaging in these things that sort of reinforce those three notions, that's when things tend to get off track for me. And I think this is true for an awful lot of people. Women have so many responsibilities that seems like you never have enough time for yourselves. How can women challenge themselves to become inspired? Well, listen to She Said, She Said podcast for one thing. <laughs> that was an easy one, Chris. Thank you so much. That was a watermelon I tossed you. <laughs> no, you know, it is, um, you're exactly right. It is hard for us to, to make time for ourselves. And I think this is true for men as well. But one of the the real, I think, opportunities with She Said, She Said podcast, it, and I talk about this a lot, is that it's an opportunity for my listener to invest in herself, to, to dedicate that 30 to 45 minutes a week to hear some positive content, whether it's a guest or whether it's a deep dive into a topic. I'm never going to waste her time. I am going to, you know, we, we don't do a ton of chit chat. I'm talking about important issues. Um, my guest is telling a story or I'm sharing some perspective that I've learned. There are actionable tips and advice that come out of here, out of each conversation. I'm really trying to deliver value to my audience in a way that acknowledges and honors what you just said, the fact that she is, or he, is incredibly busy. Everybody, there's so many demands on our time and attention. I feel a huge amount of responsibility to not waste anyone's time and instead try to produce consistent content that really is value added. Again, I'm not perfect and I, you know, I'm still learning every single day, but I do my best and I do really focus on this idea of how can I help my listener solve a problem or how can I share something that I think is so incredible that she just has to know about and share that each and every week in a way of really adding value to her. Often, positive change doesn't come without hardships. You said that you had to grieve the process of pivoting from doing work that you love, that no longer fits your life, the legacy you want to leave behind, to something that might be even more amazing. What does that grieving process look like, and why is grieving a necessary part of pivoting? Yeah, thank you for asking that, that question. It took me uh, you know, longer probably than it should have to decide to leave my corporate job. It, um, my job at PwC was really important to me. And it was the job that I had aspired to. And I loved it for so much of the time that I was there. But what I found is that I outgrew the work that I was doing and needed. I needed to challenge myself in a different way. And the grieving process for me, and I think this is true for an awful lot of people that leave a job that they once loved, especially when you have to decide, well, even when you don't, you know, if you're laid off, uh, you know, which a lot of people unfortunately are struggling right now with circumstances like that, it's okay to grieve something um, that you've had to say goodbye to because your life has changed, circumstances have changed. And pulling those pieces that really are valuable that you're going to take with you, 
but it's okay to spend some time actually grieving something that doesn't fit anymore. Um, But I think the real answer to that is really looking at value and how are you going to deploy that value in those experiences, the things that you've taken away with you, how are you going to deploy that a bit differently? Sadly, a close personal friend of yours passed away after a heart attack just shy of their 50th birthday. After that experience, you find yourself in a conference call at work wondering, if I were to die today, what would my children say about what I did with my life and would I be okay with that? Even though you loved your job, you went to your boss and said, it's time to do something else. So you signed on to teach a course at American University, which you mentioned before, and took on several nonprofit board roles. Why did you take those specific steps? Yeah, well, you're out of fear, to be quite honest. If I'm, if I'm being completely honest with you, I was really afraid. My identity was so wrapped up in my job and in how I had, had defined myself and how I felt like other people had, had defined me. I mean, that's the worst thing that you should worry about is what other people think about you. But, but, but I did, right? I would be lying to you if I was not honest about that fact. And I had to come to terms with that because it was, you know, it was really, it was really important. Um, but it was a difficult thing for me to recognize that I could do it on my own, that I didn't need to have that PwC label, that I had to really take a good hard look at myself and what I could do and what I wanted to do and the, you know, hopefully the gifts that I can give to other people as a result of these experiences that I've had. But it took a lot of soul searching. I think this is um, oftentimes a pretty common trap that people can find themselves in. And the danger of aligning yourself too closely with any organization or any, you know, project is that inevitably it will come to an end at some point. Either you retire or, you know, God forbid, companies go bankrupt. Bad things happen all the time, right? And so if you've aligned yourself too, too closely, it just makes it really, really difficult when you have to pivot. And so knowing yourself really well, really understanding the value of what you've learned from all of these circumstances, what are those transferable skills, um, I think is such valuable. Um, I mean, it's, it's just such a valuable piece. And I, you know, I, I didn't necessarily recognize that. So I signed up for anything that any anybody coming in the door who knew I was leaving offered me an opportunity. And I said yes to that. And, you know, it did gave, give me some structure so that when I left, I could, but then I found that I had no time to ultimately make decisions. But it gave me the ability to say, you know, to, to clearly eliminate things that I knew I didn't want to do going forward and sort of distill down the things that really were speaking to me. But I had to come to terms with the fact that, um, it was going to be a process and it was a lot of change. And I worked very differently in a very different way and on very different things than I did in my, in my corporate job. And change is hard. Um, I don't think I'm unusual in that regard. I had to come to terms with the fact that all of that was very different, even though it was something that I said, I want this. It wasn't that I had been laid off. It was that I had made this decision. And, you know, sometimes that can be difficult too in coming to terms with that. But I know that sounds probably like a crazy answer, but it's completely honest. And and there was a tremendous amount of personal growth that came as a result of that process that I went through. So with all that personal growth, how do you feel your current work has a more positive impact on the legacy that you want to leave behind? 
Yeah. Well, I think having to engage really directly with my audience and serve her in a way that I hope is adding value while I'm also learning alongside her each week, um, it fills me with so much joy. There's also, you know, a certain amount of fear and trepidation that goes along with this work and producing content and pushing it out every single week and knowing that people may hate it, right? They may love it. They may hate it. They're probably going to be get a range of responses to those things every single week. That's scary. It's still scary to me, maybe not as much as it was at, at the beginning. But one of the things that I do try to do now, I have um, two teenagers, more or less. One's just about to be a teenager in a matter of weeks, and the other one's currently a teenager. And so I talk a lot about the emotion that I go through when I'm feeling a lot of fear and trepidation when I'm about to take a risk, whether it's pushing out content that I'm maybe, you know, a little bit nervous about, maybe it's a little edgier than normal or something like that, or I'm interviewing somebody and I'm, you know, really intimidated, maybe, you know, need a confidence boost, something like that. But I talk to my kids about this because I want them to see, A, the struggle, what fear looks like, how you can put it in a box, use it for energy, but ultimately do that hard thing anyway. And I'm constantly trying to show them what that looks like because for my daughter in particular, I have a son and a daughter, For my daughter in particular, she's probably wired a lot like I am, and I don't want her to let fear stand in her way. And so if she sees how to feel that feeling and do the hard thing anyway, then maybe she'll learn those skills a little bit earlier and won't struggle with fear, maybe the same way that I did at at different juncture points in my life. So, you know, we as parents are always trying to do the best job that we can. We try to role model. And when we make mistakes, maybe being a little more transparent and talking to our kids about, okay, here's where I screwed up. Here's how I could have done this differently. And here's what we learned from this uh, situation. Um, So I think this, the podcast gives me a lot of opportunities to really reflect on those, those um, scenarios and maybe use that knowledge in a, in a way that I might not have had the opportunity otherwise. When someone is thinking of making a career change, in your experience, is it better to stay too long or leave too early? <laughs> well, that's a really personal uh, question for anyone who's contemplating a career pivot. I would say spend the time to understand your story. If you, if you can, if you're in a in a job and you're contemplating leaving, really ask yourself, what are those transferable skills? What are those things that I'm not able to do currently that would be really important and impactful to me? What are your life circumstances? Who's depending upon you financially? I think all of those are considerations that you have to ask yourself. Not everyone is in a is in a position of leaving to try to take a big risk and try something completely new. Um, and so you have to be honest with yourself about do you have the the uh, you know the financial savings to allow yourself to 
ultimately take that risk. Um, That's a real consideration for an awful lot of people, if not most people. And so being honest with yourself about all of those things and maybe setting some benchmarks, putting those in place can be really, really helpful. Now, I would never recommend that anybody stay in a situation in which they are being harassed or abused or having to endure, you know, cruelty. Um, that's a different, a, a you know, a very different situation in in my mind. Um, but I think really being honest, all things created equal. If it's just something that you think you've outgrown, I think just uh, just think about your timing and what makes sense for you and your family. And as we reframe our stories, how can we do it in a healthy and authentic way? Well, you know, I think thinking about. Fear and failure and those times when things have not worked out the way that we wanted to and really looking for the value and not just accepting something that didn't work out and reflecting on your own personal experience as something that's been negative. Um, I think to the extent that you can look at, you know, I mean, this is goes without saying, I think for your audience in particular, Chris, we learn so much more from failure than we do from things that work out ultimately, although I would argue we learn from both. But we only learn from those failures when we take the time to understand what it was that went wrong and then how are we going to recalibrate going forward? And so I think it really has a lot to do with the mindset. Are you approaching these uh, opportunities potentially with a with a mindset that's focused on growth versus thinking about okay this was a failure I'm never going to try that again overdone goodbye instead I mean it's always looking for what can I pull from whatever it was good bad or otherwise and take it with me going forward and how can I tell a different story how can I differentiate myself in a way that really creates a unique story that I can then share with someone else, whether it's packaging yourself for another job or a client, it's really creating a differentiated story that will be incredibly impactful because it's unique to you. All of those experiences that you've had coupled with the jobs that you've had and how you tell that story is very unique to you. Laura, we have just a few minutes left. You're an accomplished speaker and author. One more time, how can people reach you if they'd like you to speak to the group and where can they tune into She Said, She Said? Thank you. Well, I would be delighted to hear from anyone in your audience. You can find me at she said she said podcast.com. You can find me on Instagram at Laura Cox Kaplan with a K or on LinkedIn at Laura Cox Kaplan. And I would be so grateful. I'd love to hear from anyone who's had an opportunity to listen. And I hope they'll check out She Said, She Said podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever they're listening to podcasts. Laura Cox Kaplan, the pride of Rising Star Texas. Thanks so much for being with us today. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. It was really a pleasure. I'm so honored. No, the pleasure was mine. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.
Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.